electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, high-growth tech stocks come up short. We're going to explain this week's weakness and the interest rate to hate for what have been favorite cloud and software names, plus the opportunities on the other side of that trade. Then, is Zoom's 40 minutes of fame finally up? Investors stuck in the waiting room as that stock stumbles again. Seven firms cut their target today. Later on, investors unplug from Best Buy as shares lose power. Is this stock actually your best buy today at these levels? We'll try to get some answers on that this hour, John. Yeah, Carl, the NASDAQ down more than a percent for the second day in a row. But let's start with a poster child of the sell-off in high multiple high growth stocks. And that is Zoom. Uh, slowing growth, the story there again this morning. Shares now down more than 18 percent. Earnings actually fine. Stock posting a beat on the top and bottom line. But investors are worried about what's ahead post-pandemic Revenue growth, of course, is slowing. Stock has been cut in half, a little bit more than half of the past 12 months, Deirdre. It looks like around 54%. But at the same time, it's still about double what it was before the pandemic began. So we're kind of in that weird state. It's doubled since the pandemic began, but it's half of what it was <laughs> at the peak of the hype, D. Um, I wonder at yeah, what point it's Yeah, that's not even going back to the far. IPO. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has been an incredible story. And you said it, John, earnings were actually fine. But remember, this is a company that had revenue growth north of 300 percent as early as the first quarter of this year. I guess the question, Carl, is this really the platform bet that investors thought it was throughout the pandemic, something called UCAS, Unified Communication as a Service, that 5-9 acquisition not going through perhaps hurts that argument that it can be more than sort of a pandemic play. Um, interesting moment on the conference call, uh, Carl, last night when Eric Yuan said to the analyst, if you see anything cool that we should acquire, let us know, because they do have cash to still do something. Yep. Also improved churn among uh, customers that are smaller than 10 employees. John, uh, a lot of this is, does seem to be coming down to customer size distribution, so to speak. Yeah, this reminds me of Roku in a way, right? Because what, Carl, fundamentally was good about this company to begin with? They did this video communication thing better than anybody in terms of call quality, in terms of stream quality, usability. They still have that. I think a question is how much can they continue to expand that and extend it, not just in consumer, in small business, in enterprise, they tried with five nine. That didn't work, but they've still got that brand and they still got the stock currency. Yep. Our next guest, meantime, says the stock is in fact a high risk play. Concerned with that slowing growth, cuts his target from three hundred four now down to two fifty. City's Tyler Radke's with us. Uh, Tyler, appreciate the time today. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, it does seem to be a, a sort of a confused print. We got a pop on the news after the bell last night and clearly uh, the action that we're seeing today. What's so what do you think? Try to clarify it for our viewers. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think this was a quarter where it almost felt like the more you knew, the, the worse you felt. Uh, to your point, the, the headline numbers, the, the reported revenue and initial guidance uh, cleared buy side expectations and, and where Wall Street was expecting but when you dug into the print, uh, it, it, it just kind of signaled that the company was going to continue to slow down as you get into next year. If you look at the, num the number of new customers they added, it was the, the lowest number of customers they added in over three years, well before the pandemic. Um, so so kind of suggests that the market might be increasingly saturated. You also saw the SMB side of the uh, business, which was about a third of overall revenue, that actually started to decline sequentially. So I think while the churn rates may have been a little bit better, 
that revenue actually starting to decline sequentially, the weakness on the net ads just didn't give investors a great feeling heading into next year. Yeah. You point out in your note, uh, when it comes to, to the diversity of its growth drivers, we found the lack of updates here puzzling. Uh, is there something regarding disclosure that you're uncomfortable with? Yeah. I mean, I think it, I wouldn't necessarily say uncomfortable, but you know, for a business that is predominantly Zoom meetings, which is what we're on right now, um, you, you would think that you would want to highlight kind of more incremental uh, updates on new products. So, you know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, some of the new products they're working on with the call center, Zoom phones has been a big topic of discussion, even just million dollar uh, customers with the Fortune 500 at their analyst day. They talked about only 5% of the Fortune 500 uh, are million dollar customers. And so, there were some disclosures around million-dollar customers and, and Zoom phone that we got last quarter that didn't get updated this quarter. And typically, when companies don't update disclosure, investors are, you know, likely to believe that that's they're not updating it for a reason. Um, you know, right? So it, I think that right. Was, it makes you it makes you wonder. Good morning, it's Deirdre here. Um, also, I noticed them. They talked about Zoom rooms. Um, the CFO said that it had become even more important, but you're right. There was sort of a lack of sort of some absolute numbers there. And I wonder if you think that this has anything to do with the growing Microsoft Teams threat. When you look at Zoom, Slack, another pandemic, darling, do you think that this threat is only growing bigger for them? Yeah, I think it's a competitive market, right? I mean, web conferencing, video conferencing isn't new. I mean, you had Cisco WebEx be around for a while. Zoom is clearly the best of breed in that market. But I think what you're seeing is the economy reopened. Zoom went from being mission critical during the pandemic because we couldn't see each other in person to perhaps a little bit less mission critical now that we're in at least a hybrid workforce. And and clearly, Microsoft has done really well upselling uh, their their office suite with the E3, E5 bundling. and, And we think Teams continues to get better over time. And so you know, I think I think the the competition in this market is uh, picking up for sure. Tyler, different uh, industry sort of, but I remember when Qualcomm didn't get NXP, and people thought, "Oh well, how are they going to get into cars? This is a major problem." The stock was down. Okay, Zoom didn't get five nine, but they still have this focus in enterprise. I imagine they've got to build out more Salesforce, more process along that, but they've got a product that has been not only business tested, but also consumer tested at this point. So at what point have investors underestimated Zoom again? Yeah, I think it, it you know, certainly, as you point out, the stock is down uh, more than 50% from its highs and, and, you know, still up from pre-pandemic levels. So, you know, we, we could potentially be getting closer there. I mean, my target is is 250 uh, post post this most recent quarter, I think the thing that um, you know you need for a stock to turn around is when do you start to kind of get some better news flow. And and the challenge is the next quarter they're going to have to provide an initial outlook on next year's revenue growth. And you know our concern is that that could actually be below fifteen percent. Um, if I look at where the the estimates post this quarter have come out, it's about seventeen percent. So I think there still could be some more uh, downside to come on, on the number side. Um, it feels like the new product stuff is, is still a little bit too early to, to move the needle, but would love to see more uh, disclosure there to better under, you know, appreciate the multi-product story that yeah. Zoom has. Uh, below 200 uh, for the first time since Memorial Day of last year, uh, Tyler. We're going to watch it uh, in what's obviously a pretty tough tape as well. Thank you, Tyler Radkia City. Hey, thanks well, for having me. not the only... Tech name coming back to earth this morning. Investors fleeing high multiple, high growth momentum stocks across the board. The tech board, that is. Mike Santoli has more on that rotation. Mike. Yeah, Dan, it's been going on for a while, but absolutely has accelerated into this week and has become a little more urgent. Actually, around 1030 this morning, you really saw another flush lower in some areas such as uh, payments as well as cloud. Those are all up here on a year-to-date basis, and and this is what's happened in payments uh, and cloud. FinTech, let's just say, not just payments and cloud. This is the equal-weighted technology sector. So that just gives you a sense of the average technology stock against the NASDAQ 100. They've held up relatively better. You've also had this sense that, you know, there's this natural rotation going on 
The big growth stocks kept the market supported for a couple of weeks. Now that's spilling back. Higher yields are a cue to me that the incremental dollar on a given day goes toward value and banks and things like that. But the real factor that's driving a lot of the activity today is crowding. So it's it's broken momentum stocks, heavily owned, on leverage by hedge funds and others, but also just where the, the valuations are all way out in the future. And there's been a little bit of a faltering in uh, maybe the near term growth picture for a lot of these groups out there. And a lot of capital fled into these areas and are now being rationalized. guys. Hey, Mike, how different does this look from February? Uh, not terribly different, to be honest with you. It seems like kind of an exaggerated, aggravated shakeout of crowded positioning. Um, what we don't know, and, you know, February into March, you know, we had the Bill Wong stuff. We didn't know that was going on in certain segments of the market. I'm not saying anything odd like that is happening, but it does seem like there's portfolio flush activity and it's erratic. Normally, with yields up, you might see small caps doing well. Well, they're getting sold off today. There's a tax loss selling impulse that's also exacerbating some of the declines as we get toward year end. So I don't think it's one single thing that's a key to the action here. And also, you don't kind of know when it's going to dry up because it might do it without any notice. Meanwhile, Mike, uh, NASDAQ on pace for the first uh, 1% plus decline back to back since March. We haven't done this in a while. No, we haven't. And, you know, it does somewhat reflect just a little bit of that mean reversion. Like I said, we had a really narrow rally going into this week uh, in those huge tech stocks that did, you know, keep the S&P basically flat for two weeks. So it's coming back to the pack. You do have banks and value that are doing relatively better. Also, under-owned areas, you know, consumer staples are up two days in a row. Nobody likes them. Nobody cared much about them. But they're up because it's kind of going from stuff that's crowded to stuff that's been neglected. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, could be another losing day for the Nasdaq. And tech is the worst performer in the S&P this morning. The Nasdaq down uh, 3% in the last 24 hours. Let's talk opportunity, though, during this tech pullback. Our next guest has Alphabet, Apple, and the stock formerly known as Facebook, all in his top five holdings. Joining us now, Wedgwood Partners CIO David Rolf. David, uh, good to have you this morning. Let's first tackle the mega cap names. Really, they're down today, but seen as sort of the value tech this year when the higher growth names are selling off? Yeah, we didn't participate a whole lot in that, in that real go-go tech. Uh, our largest holdings, uh, uh, the valuations aren't stretched. The, uh, even the recent quarterly earnings, uh, for the most part, outside of Facebook, uh, were outstanding. Uh, the offset on Facebook is they're, they're, they're hoovering up every share they possibly can with multi-billion dollar buybacks. So we're really comfortable with our top positions right now. David, payments names also make up a significant part of your portfolio. I see PayPal and Visa. Uh, do you think that their sort of valuations have been beaten down enough, or do you think that they continue to see fundamental disruption in the space from incumbent fintechs, the crypto space, what's going on in Europe with peer-to-peer payments? Yeah, there's, there's some hair on these stocks, and uh, the prices reflect that. We, uh, we've owned Visa for years. And uh, it, it, not long ago, it was a, it was a pretty large holding. Uh, we've actually were, were trimmers uh, over the last year or so. But we're, we're back in buying again, and we're slowly rebuilding our position. Uh, same could be said for, for PayPal. PayPal was more unique than, uh, than Visa in that the valuation really got ahead of itself. And so uh, you know, it's, been, it's been hit so hard that if this continues, we'll, uh, we probably need to start building up that position again. But we like the long-term secular story. Um, we recognize some of the uh, disruption that's going on in the payment space. We think these companies are going to be able to handle it. And uh, we're going to let the valuations come to us uh, if we want to build more from here. David, we're talking about a lot about what's not working this morning, the high growth, Zoom, some of the payments. But, you know, S&P and NASDAQ are still really, really close to all-time highs. And that can't be all you know, kind of mega scale tech. What is working uh, the way you look at the markets and your holdings and why? Well, again, when I, when I look at some of the better stocks that have performed outside of tech in our portfolio and just from on a real short term basis, just looking at the screen today and what's green and what's, you know, red's getting hit hard in tech. I mean, we, we have we only own 20 stocks, but a little diverse, diversification goes a long way. We own bookings. We own Progressive, we own United Healthcare. All of those have terrific long-term fundamental stories. We understand the business models. The valuations aren't demanding, and um, the stocks are reacting in kind. In kind, in in the large cap growth 
area, which is very crowded, they're underowned. And so, uh, uh, as your previous guest mentioned, uh, some of the stuff that's underowned is is picking up a bid these days. What, what is a valuation that's not demanding at this point? Um, in terms of in the tech sector or non-tech? Uh, tech sector. I don't know how you're measuring PE or, or however you want to chart that out. Well, I think a name that is is less demanding and it should be on an investor's radar screens if, if they don't own it is Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, an unbelievably terrific business. Uh, we learned something very interesting in their, in their recent quarterly uh, filing. Uh, Taiwan Semi's bookings grew over 40 percent. And that was twice their headline uh, revenue growth. Uh, they took in, and they've never had anything like this before, they took in $4 billion in prepayments from the likes of NVIDIA, AMD, Apple. I mean, these companies are, are begging them, please take our money. Please give us your cutting-edge technology. Please put us at the front of the line. The stock's going to probably earn 5 bucks next year. It's 12, 13 times EBITDA. It's 24 times ES uh, uh, earnings per share. And... They've scaled their, their margins, continue to expand or their profitability. I mean, here's a business, mid-team grower. It's, it's got a cash flow return on investment exceeding now 40%. You know, 24 times isn't a screaming buy, but in this environment, it's time to start building positions in that. And that's what we've been doing with uh, TSM. Right, David, I guess this is what you call a non-absurd value tech stock in your note. But you said for the high momentum ones that it's going to get uglier before it gets better. Uh, what did you mean by that? How ugly does it get? Is that next year with the, you know expected interest rate hikes? I think it's gonna, it could get ugly really quick here. Hey, listen, I think I think uh, what the bond market is saying right now, and, and the way these uh, uh, very high value tech stocks are saying is that hey, it's you know in terms of the Fed, it's last call at the bar, and uh, uh, I think people are selling before the uh, the Fed takes the uh, punch bowl away. Um, maybe early next year, but that's certainly in the cards. The bond market is screaming that, and uh, the stocks are reacting in kind. We've written in the past, uh, you know, the, the Fed right now is like the Hotel California. QE is really easy to get into, but it's going to be a little tough to get out of, and, uh, and we think the Fed is, is trapped here. And so those uh, high-duration stocks, high-growth, huge multiples, um, I, I don't know how far that safety net is under these valuations, but it's probably further than most uh, – most investors can probably uh, um, think about right now or, or handle the pain. Right. Well, David, thanks for your insights. As always, we'll talk to you again soon. David Rolf, Wedgwood, CIO. Thank you very much. We will continue to monitor the sell-off today in tech, including the pain in payments and the breakdown in Bitcoin as Tech Check is back after this quick break. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Time for a gut check. And today it is Best Buy. Shares are down big now, more than 15 percent slowing consumer demand in its electronics division. Plus, those supply chain bottlenecks, the chief catalyst there. Analysts are concerned that sales will weaken as economies reopen and spending shifts to travel and entertainment. Uh, we did hear from the CFO this morning, CEO this morning, rather, today's move cutting its year to date gains in half. John, it is an ugly chart, but... Yeah. Still up 16% year-to-date, so ugly day below the average broader market gains for the year. I guess for now, anyway, they could say not as ugly as Zoom, at least. Yeah. Uh, Payment stocks, meanwhile, feeling some pain as well, nursing a bit of a hangover, even before the eggnog heading into the holiday season. Our Kate Rooney explains. Kate. Hey, John, the payment names are some of the worst performers 
in recent weeks. Those high multiple fintech stocks are getting caught up in the broader tech sell-off, while there's really an overall bearish narrative emerging around those credit card names. So Visa was the worst performer in the Dow yesterday. That sell-off really started last week with Amazon saying that it would stop accepting Visa credit cards in the U.K. due to fees. And Visa's CFO saying he expects to reach an agreement with consumers, he says, or with uh, Amazon and says consumers won't be impacted. But investors have not been able to shake off some other worries. That includes regulation as Visa deals with a DOJ investigation and competition in buy now, pay later and even crypto. There's some new threats as well as uh, the cross-border recovery looks uncertain. There's more lockdowns in Europe. You can also see American Express and MasterCard there trading lower in sympathy. FIS and Fiserv, those merchant acquirers, also now down double digits for the year. And then there are those growth stocks. They really trade like tech stocks. They're selling off for some of the same reasons, fear of rising rates and that rotation from momentum into some of the value names that Mike Santoli talked about earlier. Then you've got Square and PayPal. Those were some of the biggest pandemic era winners. They are now negative for the year and forecasted lower growth heading into next year. SoFi also down double digits for the week after SoftBank and its SPAC sponsor, Social Capital, sold shares. Robinhood and Affirm, meanwhile, getting caught up in that tech sell-off, too. And those high expectations for these names have really been priced into these stocks, especially as they build themselves as the next and the only super app. And guys, this payments group has also seen concentration and heavy concentration from a lot of the hedge funds lately. Back to you. You know, Kate, uh, as we've covered Microsoft and Visa over the years, really seen as sort of the safe value play, the rails, as they like to call themselves, they could never be disrupted. And we're seeing such an interesting moment now. I know that both of them have been sort of focused on innovation for a long time, but they just haven't been able to keep up or move fast enough as some of these incumbents that you mentioned, like a firm and the buy now, pay later movement, just so integral to that entire business model and actually could disrupt those rails. Yeah, I mean, it could end up being sort of an innovator's dilemma where fees are really an interchange is uh, really the, the way that Visa makes money. They have to spend on R&D to either partner with fintechs, try to get into crypto. But the whole idea of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is to cut out middlemans like a Visa and like the banks. So they are tr- sort of walking the line of trying to partner, trying to be relevant in the crypto space while also being the, mm-hmm. the entity that people want to disrupt. So I think they're having a hard time And they've bounced back from things like this before. Some see it as a buying opportunity. They have not been able to shake off the recent bearish narrative, though, around their name, their uh, antitrust issues and concerns around that. MasterCard and Amex also getting slammed on some of the same concerns. Yeah, all at a time when uh, we thought that the opening of cross-border travel was going to be good news uh, for some of those legacy names. Kate, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, Thank you, Kate Rooney. One article making the rounds in your inbox and on Twitter today uh, takes a look inside what the FT calls... The Tesla Financial Complex. Author behind it is going to join us next to explain. Tech Check is back in a moment. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Resetting here near the bottom of the hour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Air is definitely coming out of tech the last two days. The Nasdaq actually set a record high after the open yesterday. And since then, it's down almost 3%. Tech and consumer discretionary, the two worst performing sectors with the 10-year back to 165. John? Yeah, well, one stock that is doing pretty well and has mostly weathered the high growth sell-off is Tesla. Still near all-time highs, market cap above a trillion dollars, and some new data is helping the bull case. Our Phil LeBeau explains. Phil? And that data comes from the state of California, John, where the New Car Dealers Association in California puts out a quarterly report. And it looks at every brand in every segment, who's doing well, who's not doing as well. And Tesla is really doing well in California right now. Year to date, it has 
grown sales faster than any other automaker. Number one with growth of 64%. There you see Porsche, Hyundai, and Kia. Those are the next three in terms of how much sales have grown this year. The Model Y is the real driver of the growth in California. It is now the fifth best-selling model in California. That's overall. That's not just among electric vehicles. It is also the number one luxury compact SUV in California. The success of the Model Y, not just in California, but also in China and in other markets. It's the reason why estimates for annual sales from Tesla continue to move higher. The fact set estimate now is for 893,000 vehicles to be delivered this year, we'll get those Q4 delivery numbers and the full year total sometime in the first couple of days of January. Take a look at Tesla versus Toyota, General Motors, and Ford. And yes, they've all had a nice move this year. And you might look at Ford and say, well, look, they're outperforming everybody. But keep in mind where they were coming off of the other automakers relative to Tesla. Again, California is the market to watch, not just for EV sales, but it's the number one auto market in this country, guys. And through the third quarter, Tesla's done really well there. <laughs> you know, Phil, granted, I'm in San Francisco, so I'm sure the uh, Tesla's per square feet is higher here than elsewhere in sure. the state. But it's one of those things you wonder. You see so many if you're looking out for them or if there's actually a higher number on the street. So that's really interesting. But talk about the supply side of this as well, because anecdotally, I hear about long waiting lists for people waiting to receive their Teslas here. Would that number be higher otherwise, potentially? Yes, it would be higher, uh, not just in California, but around the country. Having said that, Deirdre, it would be higher for all automakers. I've talked with people who have a number of different models that have been ordered, whether it's from Tesla or from Chevy or Ford, who, in any, uh, any automaker. Almost everybody right now is dealing with people who have put in reservations or have put down a deposit, and now they are waiting. So, yes, the supply chain is definitely limiting the growth of potential sales, not just in California, but around the country. Uh, that's fascinating, Phil. Thanks, uh, Phil LeBeau. Want to stick with Tesla here? Our next guest says the company's dominance goes well beyond the auto market, beyond its own stock price. It's fundamentally changed financial markets overall, something he calls the Tesla financial complex. Quoting from the piece, Tesla's influence over the ebb and flow of the stock market is far greater than even its size would imply. It may even be historically unrivaled in its wider impact. Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times joins us this morning. Robin, great piece. Got a lot of attention this morning. You talk about its share of the options market, uh, its share of hedge fund trading, retail fascination. What, what of those metrics do you think is the most interesting? I think it's hard to look past the options side. I mean, Tesla is obviously a huge company, very successful company, and its share price has gone through the roof. But what is really unprecedented about it is just the scale and the activity in the options, Tesla options. Uh, we're talking $240 billion worth of nominal options trading a day. That is twice as much as is Amazon and almost twice as much as the rest of the S&P 500 complex combined. So it's just staggering, right? There have been days where more Tesla options have traded than everything else combined. And that's unprecedented. Why do you think uh, this is? Uh, is it, say, something about sentiment overall? Is it about this giant turn that we're making in one of the biggest industries in the world? Is it about uh, his cult of personality as the richest man in the world? All of the above, basically, right? I think Tesla is, is unique in how it's captured the zeitgeist of innovation, at a time when technological change is so rapid, right? And we can see that electric vehicles are going to be a far broader part of the future. People then extrapolate into thinking that Elon Musk is going to solve all sorts of problems and revolutionize all sorts of industries. And when that hype, and that's been building for years and years, combines with an incredible retail trading environment like we've seen over the past 18 months and a resurgence of options trading, you kind of have a perfect storm. You have a great meme stock, basically, the mother of all meme stocks, combined with a once-a-century options trading environment. And what you get is, you know, a mega cap like Tesla adding $400 billion of market cap for almost $500 billion in a year. And that's just staggering. Yeah, but Robin, here's the problem. Elon Musk himself has been critical of the rise in Tesla's stock price. 
He reiterated that as recently as the Code Conference just back in September. Uh, also, you've got options that are making the entire market a lot more volatile, and we've seen the impact of that in, in trading of Zoom and, and other stocks today. And then you've got Musk himself, who in the past has been unpredictable. How much of a market risk is Tesla and Elon Musk right now? Hard to say. I, I think it's fair, and this is my central thesis with this Tesla financial complex, is that what happens in Tesla doesn't stay in Tesla. It is just so big now and has such a huge options market and associated structured products that reference Tesla. Lots of hedge funds are long or short. Uh, all fund managers basically get whipsawed depending on what kind of weighting they have in Tesla. That's just not something we can ignore anymore. Now, whether it's a market risk, I mean, let's what people call a systemic risk. That's what I'm not so certain about. But I do think that although, you know, Tesla dropping 10, 20% isn't all a disaster. We saw that after Musk you know, started selling down his shares and after the result of some of these tweets, that didn't ripple that much further. But that just took Tesla back to where it was in October, right? I mean, Tesla could basically yeah. drop 50% in value and still be one of the most richly valued <laughs> companies in the world. And that's just staggering. And I think the ripple effects from that are probably unappreciated, right? Because right. clearly some people are going to lose money. That always happens. But there is all these other interlinkages and some fund managers will look like geniuses as a result, and other people are going to look like duds. Yeah. So when you, you talk just about ne those never ripple have effects, a situation though, like this. Robin, when you talk about those ripple effects, and we talk about this in terms of what some might call a broader bubble in anything related to EV stocks, Tesla has been able to successfully raise money on the back of its rising share prices. But then you have Arivian and Lucid that went public at such inflated valuations and have to continue to manufacture and build out factories. What is the risk there? Will they be able to pull off essentially what Tesla has when they're starting at a much different point? Yeah, I think that's the important nuance is that Tesla is a very successful company. Nobody's doubting that. Musk has done a phenomenal job, way better than many of the beers really predicted. You can always argue where that money's come from and, and tax credits and all that, but he's done what a lot of people didn't thought, think was successful. But on the back of that, he's clearly helped inflate through no fault of his own a what can only be described as a bubble-like situation in almost anything electric vehicle related. And the risk for Tesla is that it continues to be a good, successful company, but it drops to a more normal valuation a realistic valuation, like what we saw Oracle and some of the other dot-coms did after 99 and 2000s. With a Lucent Rivian, that's just a question of like whether they'll implement. They're kind of, either they grow into these this hype and hope, or potentially they go to zero, right? I, I'm not an EV expert, so I wouldn't be able to hazard a guess on that. But, you know, I think there's a lot of froth in this sector that we need to keep an eye on. Right. Uh, well, your point about Musk is is a good one in that he has repeatedly said he he believes or he says at least that the price of the shares are too high. Uh, one last question, I guess, what would it take for you to be less hesitant to call it uh, a systemic risk, at least in the options market? Well, I think for me, I just have a very high bar for something systemic. Systemic does not mean that we have a market puke, right? You know, back in the day, markets used to drop 10, 20 percent as a matter of course. And that wasn't necessarily some sort of massive disaster. Uh, systemic for me is something that has ripple effects beyond just stocks go down. I'm not there yet. But clearly through just so much money that's been chasing some of these stories, at some point it might be that a such a big drop wipes out so much imagined wealth that it actually has a ripple effect in other parts of the financial system. I don't think we're there, but, you know, I, I don't think anybody can argue that markets feel a little bit frothy and probably borderline mania-like in, in some sectors. And then EV is an obvious area of concern. Yeah, yeah. always hard to separate that from structural technological change. We've been through that before. Robin, yeah. uh, great piece. We appreciate your time. Thanks. Robin Wigglesworth. Thanks for having me. And now for a news update. Rahel Solomon has it. Rahel. Hi, John. Here's what's happening at this hour. Oil prices are on the rise this morning. 
but still well below recent highs. That's after President Biden announced that the U.S. will release 50 million barrels of crude from strategic reserves to ease rising gas and heating costs. Other big oil-consuming nations are also releasing reserves, including China, Japan, and the U.K. Best Buy delivering strong quarterly results, but the retailer's stock is down 15 percent. It's the worst one-day drop in nearly eight years, although Best Buy did hit an all-time high yesterday. While the company expects a strong holiday season, it is also predicting a slowdown in sales growth. Burlington stores jumping 9 percent on top and bottom line beats and strong operating margins. The company, however, is not giving sales or earnings guidance for the rest of the year. And the Turkish lira is setting record lows against the dollar for an 11th trading session in a row. Turkish President Erdogan is defending recent interest rate cuts, even as inflation soars. The lira is down 15 percent just today and about 25 percent since the beginning of last week. You're now up to date. Carl, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. ARC still underwater this year as Kathy Wood's ETFs continue to push lower, negative in eight of the last 10 sessions and set for another pullback. Short interest at a record. We'll talk about that with the NASDAQ still down 1%. Stay with us. News alert on the crypto regulatory front. Our Elon Mui has that for us. Elon, what do you have? Well, Deirdre, federal regulators are saying that they have wrapped up an initial policy review of the crypto industry and they're laying out a roadmap for additional work next year. Now, this comes from the Federal Reserve, the FDIC and the OCC, and they say that the agencies plan to provide greater clarity on whether certain activities related to crypto assets conducted by banking organizations are legally permissible. They also say that they plan to set expectations for safety and soundness, consumer protection, as well as compliance. Some of the specific activities that they'll be looking at include custodial services, loans that are collateralized by crypto assets, as well as stable coins. So again, these federal regulators laying out the type of work they want to do next year. They say these are the areas where additional public clarity is warranted and we'll know some of the activities they'll be scrutinizing in 2022. Guys. Elon, thank you. Meanwhile, positive sessions, perhaps coming two by two to the ARK ETF. It's had at least two positive sessions in the last 10. Our Dom Chu explains the flood of negative sentiment weighing down this ETF of late. Not a lot of rainbows yet, Dom. Not a lot of rainbows, but I do appreciate, John, your biblical allusions to the ARK and the two by twos. But yes, the, the negative sentiment has certainly come front and center for the ARK ETFs. And specifically, if you take a look at some of the, the major ETFs within that ecosystem, that universe, the ARK Innovation ETF is by far the biggest active ETF that they have. Now, in, t- in trading today, we're down about nearly 3%. The Genomic Revolution Fund, ticker ARKKG, is the second biggest one by assets, down about 1.5%, and 3% declines for the next generation Internet, ARKW. If you take a look at how the flagship ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, has performed relative to other parts of the market. You take a look at some of those moves in there. The ARK Innovation ETF, all right, you can see there, versus the S&P 500 and whatnot, and versus the NASDAQ overall, a sharp underperformer, and it has been that way over the course of certain points of this year as well. If you take a look at what's been driving a lot of that action so far today, you look at some of those moves that we've seen in Tesla. You had a great conversation about just how important Tesla is to the market with Robin Wigglesworth. Well, Tesla's an 11% weighting in this particular ETF, the ARKK. 45% gains here, but as you can see here, a little bit of volatility in the middle of the uh, kind of year so far. Teladoc and Coinbase also, as of late on this side of things, kind of doing some pretty decent work to the downside. So over the last month or so, not terribly good, but take a look at some of the other stocks in there as well. If you take a look at, say, uh, beyond that, Unity Software, Roku, and Zoom Video, the declines that we've seen kind of over the course of the last week or so have really kind of put front and center how the downside volatility in these six names could be a big driver for that. Now, guys, the reason why it's important for those six stocks is because those six stocks, Tesla, I mentioned the 11% weighting in that fund. Those six stocks I just mentioned make up roughly 40% of the ARC Tech Innovation ETF. So, as go those particular names, you could say so goes the overall fund, guys. Back over to you. Dom, thanks so much for that. And by the way, we mentioned this when it was announced. Uh, there is a way to short the ARC fund. That is the Short Art ETF launched by Tuttle Capital, ticker SARK. It launched on November 9th. 
ninth, excuse me, up some 13 percent. It is having a nice little November betting against innovation or at least uh, Kathy Wood's form of innovation. The CEO of that fund will join us tomorrow right here on Tech Check, Carl. Uh, meanwhile, D, one quarter does not make a quarter, at least according to Evercore. They upgrade Bumble this morning after that earnings pullback, swiping right on the stock, saying this is an attractive entry point. Uh, shares this morning, uh, 33.50 was the record low. Remember, it priced at 43 back in February and hit a high of 84. Stay with us. News alert on the crypto regulatory front. Our Elon Mui has that for us. Elon, what do you have? Well, Deirdre, federal regulators are saying that they have wrapped up an initial policy review of the crypto industry and they're laying out a roadmap for additional work next year. Now, this comes from the Federal Reserve, the FDIC and the OCC. And they say that the agencies plan to provide greater clarity on whether certain activities related to crypto assets conducted by banking organizations are legally permissible. They also say that they plan to set expectations for safety and soundness, consumer protection, as well as compliance. Some of the specific activities that they'll be looking at include custodial services, loans that are collateralized by crypto assets, as well as stable coins. So again, these federal regulators laying out the type of work they want to do next year, they say these are the areas where additional public clarity is warranted and we'll know some of the activities they'll be scrutinizing in 2022. Guys. Elon, thank you. Meanwhile, positive sessions, perhaps coming two by two to the ARK ETF. It's had at least two positive sessions in the last 10. Our Dom Chu explains the flood of negative sentiment weighing down this ETF of late. Not a lot of rainbows yet, Dom. Not a lot of rainbows, but I do appreciate, John, your biblical allusions to the ARK and the two by twos. But yes, the, the negative sentiment has certainly come front and center for the ARK ETFs. And specifically, if you take a look at some of the, the major ETFs within that ecosystem, that universe, the ARK Innovation ETF is by far the biggest active ETF that they have. Now, in, t- in trading today, we're down about nearly 3%. The Genomic Revolution Fund, ticker ARKKG, is the second biggest one by assets, down about 1.5%, and 3% declines for the next generation internet, ARKW. If you take a look at how the flagship ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, has performed relative to other parts of the market, you take a look at some of those moves in there. The ARK Innovation ETF, all right, you can see there, versus the S&P 500 and whatnot, and versus the NASDAQ overall, a sharp underperformer, and it has been that way over the course of certain points of this year as well. If you take a look at what's been driving a lot of that action so far today, you look at some of those moves that we've seen in Tesla. You had a great conversation about just how important Tesla is to the market with Robin Wigglesworth. Well, Tesla's an 11% weighting in this particular ETF, the ARKK. 45% gains here, but as you can see here, a little bit of volatility in the middle of the uh, kind of year so far. Teladoc and Coinbase also as of late on this side of things, kind of doing some pretty decent work to the downside. So over the last month or so, not terribly good. But take a look at some of the other stocks in there as well. If you take a look at, say, uh, beyond that, Unity Software, Roku, and Zoom Video, the declines that we've seen kind of over the course of the last week or so have really kind of put front and center how the downside volatility in these six names could be a big driver for that. Now, guys, the reason why it's important for those six stocks is because those six stocks Tesla, I mentioned the 11% weighting in that fund. Those six stocks I just mentioned make up roughly 40% of the ARK Tech Innovation ETF. So as go those particular names, you could say so goes the overall fund, guys. Back over to you. Dom, thanks so much for that. And by the way, we mentioned this when it was announced. Uh, there is a way to short the ARK fund. That is the Short Art ETF launched by Tuttle Capital, ticker SARK. It launched on November 9th. Ninth, excuse me, up some 13 percent. It is having a nice little November betting against innovation or at least uh, Kathy Wood's form of innovation. The CEO of that fund will join us tomorrow right here on Tech Check, Carl. Uh, Meanwhile, D, one quarter does not make a quarter, at least according to Evercore. They upgrade Bumble this morning after that earnings pullback, swiping right on the stock, saying this is an attractive entry point. Uh, Shares this morning, uh, 33.50 was the record low. Remember, it priced at 43 back in February and hit a high of 84. Stay with us.
Barclays estimates our next guest valuation at $15 billion if it were to split from Target. CEO of Shipt is next on a Herculean holiday season ahead for the supply chain. Stay with us. Got check on some recent IPOs. Roblox now 15% off its highs, down 11% yesterday alone, another two and a half today. Robinhood and Coinbase dropping as well in the session alongside UiPath. Those shares popping 23% in their debut, now plunging 10%. Even Rivian and Affirm cannot escape the carnage. These have been darlings, but these names down double digits today. Tech Check is back in just two minutes. One of the big winners of the same-day delivery wars is Shipt, the company tripling its shopper network to 300,000 over the course of 2020. And Barclays noting that the service could be worth $15 billion, more than 28 times what Target paid for it in 2017. Last week, Target said its digital sales rose nearly 30%. Joining us now with what we can expect from the holiday season and competition within delivery, Shipt CEO Kelly Caruso. Kelly, great to have you. Uh, what strikes me about that $15 billion number, who knows if that's uh, you know, exactly right or not, is that th- that's the market cap of Lyft. So tell me what's happening, not just in the logistics ahead of the holiday season, but how you're able to keep a, a very in-demand workforce engaged uh, and-, and working for you. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. As many of your viewers know, we're a same-day delivery service, delivering everything from grocery and household essentials to pet supplies, beauty, electronics, apparel, everything you need, especially for this holiday season. We cover 80% of the U.S. and we're able to do that because of our extensive personal shoppers, our ship shoppers, who truly are our secret sauce, and a very curated marketplace of 130 retailers. As I think about the next 45 days in front of us, we're able to help both retailers and consumers alike deliver a great holiday season and great results by being laser focused on two things. First, for the consumer, we are focused on delivering a very quality, high quality, personalized shopping experience, shopping and delivery for all their needs. For the retailer, it's about being a last mile delivery option for them well into the holiday season, operating up and through the closing of stores on Christmas Eve. Hmm. When I think about what's it going to take this holiday season for a retailer to be successful, it's both of those elements, quality shopping and delivering and last mile delivery. Explain the data part of the value proposition that you offer to your customers because omni-channel connecting in-store experience with delivery and digital experience, having a single view of the customer is so important these days. It is. It is. And I would start with out-of-stocks. We all know that out-of-stocks have been a pain point for both retailers and consumers alike. This entire year, we've been working with retailers to ensure that we're able to capture their just-in-time inventory feeds so that we understand in-stock and out-of-stock positions. When we have a shopper that is sitting in front of a shelf and it's an empty shelf, they're able to give us that data that we rely back, we relay back to the retailer. So they are capturing as much data points as possible to make sure that they can flow their inventory where they need it, when they need it. From a consumer standpoint, when a consumer places an order, if we've got indicators that that item's going to be low stock, we'll nudge them for a substitution up front. But here's where the real magic happens. Because our shoppers are such highly sought after shoppers, they know how to navigate a store. They're great communicators. If they come up and the item is out of stock still, they're able to figure out a high quality substitution for that customer. And they save the sale the vast majority of the time. And you know that being able to save the sale, that amounts to real retail dollars for our partners and a great experience for customers. And Kelly, when you talk about sort of the high quality shoppers, what are you seeing in the labor market, especially as you head into the holiday seasons? And I would assume you're looking to hire more seasonally. Yeah, you know, we certainly recognize that many industries have been hit by labor shortages. We've been fortunate. Over the last 20 months, we, we've been able to triple our network from 100,000 shoppers to 300,000 shoppers. And what we are finding is post-pandemic 
Americans have a different expectation on how they want to work. It is the flexibility of being able to choose when you're going to work, where you're going to shop, how many hours do you want to work. That flexibility combined with meaningful earning potential and meaningful work, the connections that they make with the customers they're shopping for, with other shoppers and for the with the retail employees. All of that combined has enabled us to have a strong shopper base that we haven't had to do a lot of seasonal hiring for. It's been for us more about engaging and getting them excited. Yeah, well, uh, delivery and receiving those items, something we're all thinking about right about now. Kelly Caruso, the CEO of SHIP, thank you. Thank you. Pretty interesting as we get close to the Thanksgiving Day holiday. Speaking of which, guys, tomorrow's going to be busy as we try to get a lot out of the way. Tonight, Dell, Gap, Autodesk, HPQ, and Nordstrom. And then tomorrow, uh, PCE and claims all the data that we would normally get on Thursday as well. Uh, So busy day, VIX above 20. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.